Welcome to That Rooted Feeling Podcast, where I bring you high-value health information and practical tips to help you improve your lifestyle habits with a focus on plant-centered nutrition so you can achieve optimal wellness that radiates into and improves all aspects of your life, giving you that rooted feeling that you won't know until you have it. Welcome back to another week and another episode of That Rooted Feeling. I'm your host, Dr. Brooke Stubbs. I'm a board-certified physician in internal and lifestyle medicine, and I am the owner of Rooted Femme, a concierge practice in Austin, Texas, where I help women to optimize their health through a focus on lifestyle factors centered around plant-based nutrition. And today I'm here with a wonderful physician, Dr. Nichelle Haynes. She's a perinatal psychiatrist here in Austin, Texas, and she is the owner and CEO of Reproductive Psychiatry and Counseling. She graduated from North Texas Health Science Center with her medical degree, and she trained at UTMB Galveston. She formerly founded and operated an inpatient women's health center at Austin Oaks Hospital, and she is here to give us all the current insight on mental health. Welcome, Dr. Haynes. I'm really excited to jump in. I feel like mental health has been so such a big topic ever since really the pandemic, maybe even before that. Um, but obviously it's always been a big topic since ever since your training. How did you get into it? And what is kind of the landscape you're seeing right now in mental health? So I actually always knew I wanted to be a physician. Like ever since I knew people had careers, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Uh-huh. And it was kind of like this... Mm, transformation that I had in college where I was a psychology major and I had this like what I call my crisis period where I just didn't know if I really actually wanted to go to medical school and really reevaluated that decision and I was kind of waffling between going to medical school and the potential to be a psychiatrist and then also maybe going to grad school and be a therapist or you know a psychologist of some kind and I just ultimately decided that I wanted to go to medical school so I could provide more options for my patients and have a more holistic view of things rather than to just only have the option of doing therapy. So went to medical school. Which is a great reason. Right. Yeah. And I think psychiatrists is really difficult because we, people come to us and they think that we just want to give medications. And that's not the case for the majority of psychiatrists. We just realize that there's not that many people who can do it. Uh-huh. And so there are a lot of different therapy options. You can go to this kind of therapist. You can go to art therapy. You can, you know, have a personal trainer to work on your exercise. There's so many other people that can provide other services and that there are so few of us to provide medication. So right. we kind of just end up being the people who do that. But I prefer to be the kind of person that does all of it kind mm-hmm. of together. And I, I like to Look integrate at the all of these yeah. things. So, you know, I kind of got there because this is something I've sort of always wanted to do. I really thrive on the connection with my patients. I thrive on getting to see them at different periods of time and seeing them at their worst and then seeing them when they're doing better and just knowing that I got to play a small part in that. It's just wonderful for me. So it was... And we share mutual patients and we've commiserated how great it is to see their transition. And it really is like this beautiful process that with you know, really good follow-up with consistency. It's just to be able to see somebody who's struggling so much with mental health and get hooked up with the right provider 
and really change the trajectory of their life and their mental health. It's incredible. It's really incredible. Isn't it so cool? It's very cool. There are these days, there are these times, these moments where you sit with patients and it is so, so difficult. Yeah. But then you also have these moments where everything kind of starts falling into place. Right. And that makes it so worth it. It's just... Yeah. Yes. And and, in psychiatry, it's one of those things where it's not glorified as much because it's not like preventing a heart attack and seeing the EKG rhythm change. It's a really Mm -hmm. slow progression. Mm -hmm. But mental health, and I'm so happy it's in the spotlight, is such a big issue in terms of our overall health that I really think that psychiatrists and therapists and anybody involved in helping with mental health really needs to be up on the, you know, in the spotlight and really be getting getting the credit that they deserve for that consistent work. Because I think a lot of times in medicine, and even, I mean, this is just kind of how I trained and tell me if you're wrong, but like, I would get a lot of like, you know, my peers would say, oh, they're a frequent flyer. Oh, they're mm-hmm. just anxious. And mm-hmm. and so we would brush them off and just kind of like treat the other things and not approach mm-hmm. the mental health mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, you know, I've obviously changed my direction in terms of how I practice medicine. And I know that mental health is a huge part of that aspect. But did you ever experience that in medical school or because you were in that psychiatry world it was well I mean yeah you go through the same rotations you do the same things and I specifically remember I was on my surgery rotation and like the patient had a diagnosis it was like a mental health diagnosis like bipolar disorder schizoaffective schizophrenia something that can be really impactful and he was there for some routine something like he was going to have a hernia repair or gallbladder or something and I was assigned to go see him because they were like, hey, you're psych, go see him. Uh-huh. I was like, okay. And he was just missing. <laughs> he had checked in. Yeah. And he was he was missing. And so we looked around for him. We couldn't find him. And he showed up a while later and he had gone to go get food and come back. Yeah. It was just, it was so um, representative of kind of how things are that like you can't take care of really anything until your mental health is taken care yeah. of. Right. Right. Like he didn't have the wherewithal to know that he was like supposed to sit and wait for the physician to come in <laughs> to talk to him. Yeah. He just wasn't he just, that focused. Yeah. Didn't have that. I part of he was pretty psychotic at the time. So it, it was, it was just kind of this like moment where I could see how that was so impactful right. on the rest of his care. Uh-huh. And I think that's so true for mental health, just, just in general, right. that it is the foundation for everything else. Because if you're so depressed, you can't get out of bed. Do you think that you're going to take care of like the wound on your foot? No. No. Right. If you're so. Or you're going to. You can't come yeah. to an appointment. You're not going to get your surgery. Right. And we. Yeah, exactly. And in addition, like we're going to talk about lifestyle factors that promote mental health. And of course, everybody wants to be able to implement the lifestyle factors first. But you have to have medicines in that acute period to really flip the switch to even get started in that realm. Mm -hmm. But like you say, if you aren't mentally in a place to get started, you can't do the exercise. You can't do the nutrition that's going to 
improve your overall health. And then you end up with diabetes and you end up with heart disease and you end up making poor choices because that's the, you know, the, the default, right? Mm-hmm. That's, it's hard to mm-hmm. be healthy and swim against, against the grain of, you know, Western society and culture mm-hmm. that is making us sick and mental health just like obesity has so many comorbidities attached, so does mental health. We know Absolutely. people that have mental health have worse outcomes with any diagnosis, really. Exactly, because they can't take care of it. Right. Right. So it really is the foundation that I, I really enjoy for myself, getting to see people establish that foundation and then seeing all the other stuff kind of come into place as well. You know, someone you know, it's really struggling in some way and they kind of get that under control and then they like start exercising and then they want to add in a great diet to their exercise to supplement that. And now they're like, oh, because I'm exercising and I'm eating well, I'm sleeping better. And then their mental health gets better. And then they have more bandwidth for this other thing. And then they're like pursuing something that brings them so much joy. And you just see how it all kind of like builds on itself. I love that. Yes, it absolutely does. And sometimes medicine is totally necessary to get that ball rolling. I don't know if you follow Dr. Daniel Amen. Do you follow him? He is a psychiatrist who started really doing a lot of um, imaging, right? Which is not typical in the world of psychiatry. But he has all these anecdotal stories about, you know, there was a kid, I guess, who had something in the left frontal lobe. It was a cyst, but they wanted to put him through all this therapy. And he really pushed imaging to see the brain. He's like, we can't really treat things that we can't see. Mm-hmm. And he ended up having a cyst and he drained it. And his behavior got bad. So that's one example. But he does a lot of imaging about, you know, how the brain reacts to alcohol or mm-hmm. marijuana and all like mm-hmm. all kinds of different things. And one of his big things right now is that we're over prescribing mm-hmm. uh, some antidepressants. What's your, mm-hmm. tell me about that. I think it's probably true. Mm-hmm. And also it's a byproduct of some of the same problems that we deal with in, in other ways, right? That um, it's sort of the easy start, uh-huh. right? And, you know, absolutely, there are definitely times where we just need medication. We sure. just need to get on board because like everything else is it's too much. But there are also times where if we were... Um, able to have the bandwidth that if we had a society that supported mothers or if we, you know, had shorter commutes and we were able to work from home and and that gave us an extra hour in our day to exercise or just a lot of the structural problems that we deal with here and a lot of the, you know, just like lifestyle issues that we have here in Uh America contribute to making it really difficult to be able to do anything else first. Right. Right. So, yeah, probably medications are overprescribed, but we're sort of. That's kind of. Yeah. 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 And and that's kind of our healthcare system, too, is treat with an acute medication Mm -hmm. and make the problem go away out of the office for now. And then we'll deal with the side effects of that down the road or we'll just increase the medication if it doesn't seem to be working. Mm -hmm. And. You know, I think med- I don't ever want to put down medicine. I think it's, you know, I mm-hmm. love it. And the advent of it has brought us to where we are. Mm-hmm. It just has its issues. And now I think that there's a subset of people who are really recognizing that we can't treat chronic things always with acute medications. Mm-hmm. 
So I think, like you say, do we have the bandwidth to change the culture? Of course, it's <laughs> so much. It's so much. But I do, I am really encouraged about the people who come into my office because mm-hmm. when you come into my office, you're already like refocusing your attention on your health, which I don't mm-hmm. think people do mm-hmm. enough. What is your recommendation to people who may feel like, okay, I might have depression. I my doctor may or may not have put me on like a low dose SSRI, something I may or may not want to be on forever. It has side effects. And one of the biggest ones that could be pretty intrusive is a decreased libido or Mm -hmm. sex drive or Mm -hmm. orgasm. And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, if you don't want the side effects of a medication, what do you say to those patients maybe who are thinking about getting on an SSRI or want to get off of one? It's so personalized. You have to make a decision for yourself. And I would say the most common reason people get off of their medication is because it's working. Okay. Right? So someone will, they'll come to me and they're feeling really depressed or anxious or whatever the issue is. We get them on medication. They start to feel better and they think like, oh, I don't need this anymore. Uh Uh-huh. And then they stop it. And Uh then their symptoms come back. Uh Uh-huh. It's like, of course. Right. Because we didn't like address any of the underlying. So what are the underlying things? Right. Okay. When we think about treatments in psychiatry, we pretty much have three different categories. So we have medications, we have therapy, and we have lifestyle changes as well. So when we approach it, we're going to use some combination of one of those or some combination of those three categories. And if we only do medication, and then we don't do anything else, then we're not really going to make things. I mean, you might feel better, you might do better, and that would be great if that's what you can handle. But if we can also use some of the other things, we can really get to a point where you might be able to get off on medications at some point in the future. And maybe we don't, maybe we can reduce your dose, maybe things are great and we finally get you to a good place. I mean, it's all very personalized, so it's hard to say like any kind of scenario. But we can look at therapy because it has really good evidence for improving things, whether we're looking at cognitive behavioral therapy, we're looking at um, EMDR therapy, we're looking at even couples therapy, or we're looking at mm-hmm. sex therapy. There's all art therapy, all different kinds um, that that is, for the most part, evidence-based in addressing some of the underlying issues or some of the underlying thought processes that lead to depression, anxiety, or, or other things. And in my mind, it's that feel it to heal it. Like you have to bring those mm-hmm. things to the surface to really mm-hmm. deal with them. Otherwise, they kind of live in your body mm-hmm. and they start to eat away at you, cause disease. Mm-hmm. That's That's my take. Do you have any opinion about that? I do agree with that. Um, I don't really know what like the evidence says about those things, but I do know that there's so much healing that I see like anecdotally with my patients as they are able to just sit and cry and, you know, recognize that that's not going to hang out forever Mm -hmm. and be able to touch some of that really hard stuff and then let it go. Right. And to have a third party who has a different perspective on it mm-hmm. that's non-judgmental. Because a lot of what P 
people hold on to when they have issues or trauma is the judgment around it or what others would think about them or not really realizing that other people have gone through pretty much the exact same thing you have and there doesn't need to be any judgment around it. So much of what we experience is universal. Of course. And it's so, I think one of the things with depression specifically that they're studying now, especially like with the psychedelics, Mm -hmm. is that they're thinking that depression comes from like a feeling of lack of connection mm-hmm. and that the psychedelics kind of give you this feeling of like connection to the world, to the universe or to a higher power, if you believe in one. Um, and that that is healing for people who are depressed. Yeah. And so I think there's something there about that connectedness. And well, we know that people who have uh, either religious or spiritual practice tend to be less depressed, also have better health outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I totally believe that. I was just talking to somebody the other day about, you know, getting patients to church or if that's what they believe in as part of their healing, as part of their treatment, because of course it it helps. It really does help. We, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know if you know the blue zones. We talk about it a lot on this podcast just because it helps us look at these centenarian populations that have Mm -hmm. really lived a long time. Mm -hmm. And we see that most of these populations that have this community connection around a religious belief have longer lives with less chronic disease. Mm -hmm. So I totally believe in connection. I even find that my patients who come and see me frequently on a consistent basis, Mm -hmm. especially the ones that are dealing with mental health, tend to do better. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's just about... A, releasing the thing, mm-hmm. right? Getting it out there, mm-hmm. getting somebody else's perspective because when it sits in you, you can tell yourself all kinds of lies about it. Mm-hmm. And then if you get somebody else's perspective on it, it kind of gives, like loses its power over you. Mm-hmm. And then when these patients fall off and don't come back, they come back with all the same narrative that they've always put in their head over and over and over again. And so I just, partially think we should just all see a therapist or a yeah. physician more often. Exactly. Yeah, totally. I mean, it it is a, a level of connectedness. It's another perspective. It's support, mm-hmm. which, I mean, in the field that I work in, I work with mostly people who are experiencing infertility or pregnancy or, you know, their postpartum. But support is evidence-based. Right. Like group therapy can improve infertility outcomes which is incredible which is incredible right and other things like um the number of close friends that a mom has is like correlated with how well she does in postpartum period right there are all these little pieces that we we intuitively know yeah and we have studied and shown that in studies it just supports the idea of like and i being connected to people who care about your well-being right I love fertility as a microcosm of the bigger picture because whatever is good for your health is good for your fertility. And when your body is doing what it's supposed to be doing in general, you know, there are exceptions, of course, there are outliers to every rule. But in general, if your body's really well regulated, if your hormones are well regulated and your body's saying, okay, we're healthy enough to carry another life, right? Then that's kind of the picture of what, you know, is going on overall in your body. So when we see these studies on this microcosm, this nine months or the leading up preconception phase, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I love studies that show success in terms of fertility, and they tend to be the same things we've seen in chronic disease. What's good for your overall health is good for your fertility. Mm -hmm. And I think that's always so important. So I love that, you know, you bring this up and you work in the perinatal world, but you also just help people for their lives to set them up for overall good health. One of the things that I super love about what I do is how impactful the emotional well-being of like a parent, a mom specifically, is on the overall health of their child for like the rest of their life. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it is just so telling about how important we are as moms or how important we are as humans to have this connection to see like when you're doing well, the people around you do better too. And not just right now, yeah. but like forever. You're like setting that example. You're Right, um, of course, lead by example. We all know that. But there's this thing called, well, mirror neurons, of course, yeah, yeah, right? Yes. Or limbic yeah. resonance. So when you see something and when you, there's like a empathic neuronal pathway, right? Mm-hmm. Where if your children see happiness, they become happier. Mm-hmm. If they see sadness, they become sadder. So it really is about putting the focus on yourself to promote their overall health. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just to see it all play out mm-hmm. and to see, oh yeah, now my kid's meeting their milestones and, you know, all of these other things is like, just really, I, I know that the seeds that I'm planting in my practice and like people improving their lives is like gonna become something bigger for the long, I just. Right. And it just, it extends through generations and then those kids will, you know, the number of people they meet and the changes they'll make in the world. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. That's how I feel about when I start somebody on a better lifestyle, you know, routine or diet or whatever it may be. I just know that that's the foundation for more things to grow, mm-hmm. right? And we get into mental health and we get into stress reduction and it just puts you on the plane to really accomplish or it opens doors to opportunities that you wouldn't have had otherwise mm-hmm. which is so beautiful so cool. yeah I love that. very cool yeah okay i want to come back because we talked about medications we talked about therapy i want to come back to like the lifestyle things oh please that's yes. the reason we're here I know, I know. <laughs> um but i want to make sure that we like spend some time talking about it because these can be so impactful and these are probably a lot of the things that you like just consistently talk about on the podcast and your practice anyway. Always good reminders. Just to point them out that sleep, Mm. so important, Mm -hmm. so important. I mean, getting that seven hours is sort of our, you know, our um, desired goal and just kind of trying to to reach that or or to know more for yourself, like how much sleep you actually need to, to be functioning well. I'm a nine hours sleep. I I was just going to say, I always shoot for eight and I have some patients where I'm like, you just need more sleep. You need to plan for a nine hour sleep window. I think, I think for me, it's like the emotional bandwidth of sitting with difficult stuff mm-hmm. for an extended period of time. And I have a lot of kids who are also dealing with Ooh. difficult, big emotions. Right. So my whole world is just like emotionally difficult. <laughs> Not that I would want to change it for any reason, but. I, I just need more sleep to like 
have some peace and, and process some of that. A hundred percent. I think that, wait, let's talk about that because we process so much while we're sleeping mm-hmm. mentally. Mm-hmm. We process fear, we process pain, we process so many emotions. Can you talk to us more about that? So we don't understand sleep as well as I feel like. Well, we will. We'll we understand will. it all. Yeah. Soon, right? And the mind is so complex. So complex. So I think what we understand about sleep for sure is that we sleep because we get sleepy. <laughs> we use our energy and that gives us pressure to go to sleep. Yeah. So I think it's um, it's definitely very important for memory consolidation. A hundred percent. So important for memory consolidation. And um, just as kind of an aside and time to tie in what I do is I think that's part of the reason that we have more than one kid. What? Because if we... We were to remember how this in those first few months when you're not sleeping. You would never have that. Well, I remember, now that I've had two, I remember. And there will be no more children for for our family. Yeah. (laughs) So I think it's like a, you know, a a thing that kind of comes all together. is like we need sleep for memory consolidation. And we're not going to accurately remember that immediate postpartum period very well. Because we are so deliriously tired. tired. Yeah. And it's just, it's just kind of highlights how important yeah. sleep is. Again, a microcosm of everything, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really good example. I'm glad yeah. you brought that up. Um, so yeah, sleep uh, for memory consolidation is super important. Um, just for like, you know, like processing emotion for, I just feel like it's a break. So then what happens to your emotional ability when you don't get enough sleep? I, I think it just, it's, um, obviously you can be more labile mm-hmm. and I, we've, we've all had this, right? Like you have a poor night's sleep and you're just cranky the next day and you can't really handle the things that you normally handle. I mean, this is, this is such a tried and true thing in our household that my husband knows <laughs> That if I don't get my sleep, it is just not good for anybody. And so, yeah, it's like very apparent. If I'm having a bad day, it's like, oh, well, you didn't sleep well last night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you see in, your, in kids too, right? A hundred percent. Kids get super cranky. You're like, are you hungry or, or are you tired? Mm-hmm. Both usually. <laughs> so anxiety can be worse when we haven't been sleeping because we just don't have the bandwidth to take that second between something happening and our reaction, mm-hmm. right? Because sometimes that second is enough to say like, hold on, this isn't really about the shoes. This is about, I'm worried about being late for work and what that looks like and right. I'm going to be able to keep my job. So it it reduces our ability to like kind of take that pause a right. little bit. We're so, more reactive to things. Yeah, Totally. So anxiety can be worse. Mood can be worse. I mean, we we all know that one. We just can be so cranky if we haven't had any um, sleep. But actually, there is some there. I think there's maybe one or a couple of studies that support the idea that depressive episodes can be brought on by poor sleep. Okay. Right. Not and and we know that poor sleep is sort of a hallmark of depression, whether it's like sleeping way more and having no energy, or it's like, I can't sleep. I'm waking up early in the morning. I can't fall asleep. I can't stay asleep. Those kind of things. Um, we know those are symptoms of depression, 
But there's also some data supporting that poor sleep itself can cause the other symptoms of depression. So I want to go back to medicine in this instance because, mm-hmm. you know, I also think that sleep aids are overprescribed, but I do mm-hmm. think that it's really important. You can't really do a whole lot for mental health until mm-hmm. your patients are getting good rest. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's also a fine line between not overprescribing or getting addicted to sleep aids and really working to get away from them, but also allowing people to get some sleep so you can make some forward progress. Mm -hmm. I have had patients where I tell them they have to set up their entire lives so that they're sleeping. Yeah. Like their entire lives. Oh, I do this with every patient. Right. And it's like, okay, we're going to work on our sleep hygiene. That's like the gold standard of making sure that we're sleeping, right? So we're not using our screens two hours before bedtime. We're not having caffeine at least eight hours before we want to go to bed. We're um, making sure that we get morning sunlight and that we're like, you know, kind of dimming the lights as the sun goes down to kind of mimic that so your body makes its own melatonin. Um, you are speaking my language. This is like the stuff I so, love, just like soak it up. Yeah. Okay, so then I have patients who... You know, they're in phases of their life, newborn babies, oh, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, people who have dogs that, you know, may be sick or, or may just for their entire lifetime wake them up in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you going to do? For 12 years, you're going to lose life. You're going to lose years off of your life. You're going to, you know, increase your risk of, you've got to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Like, you have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've even so much as like told patients, like, put it on somebody else right? Like mm-hmm. you got to figure you out, totally. right? And maybe they'll figure it out, but like you have to mm-hmm. take care of number one. Totally. <laughs> totally. And so, okay, the sleep hygiene is super important, obviously. And I also think that like preparing for bedtime is also really important that you like have your day set up so that bedtime is bedtime, Right, that like our work finishes, that we're not like working in bed, that there's just so many like little things that can come up. Like there's like kind of this thing online lately about revenge bedtime procrastination. Have you heard about it? God, no, but this sounds fascinating. So it's just like, I don't know who made it up, but it's like basically people don't have time during the day to take care of themselves. So they use that time right before bed to like do the things that they want to do, like the fun stuff, like watch a movie or they want to, you know, go out with friends or. Oh, OK. Yeah. So they're staying up real late. Right. Because they're only getting that time. And it's like, oh, I can I have this time. I, I didn't know it. it was called that, but that is yeah. like a universal yeah. issue. Yeah. So I think it's just like, you know, like a new catchphrase that people are using right now. but. Uh-huh. Um, so I've had people say that they're kind of doing things like that. And I'm like, oh, you got to find the time at other times of the day. So it means we're like, you know, we're not having a meeting that day or we're, you know, dropping the kids off at daycare earlier so that we have a little bit of time or we just have to set everything up so that the things that you're doing that impact your sleep, you're not needing to do those at night anymore. Right. It's like, well, I will say this and... I know that it's not as easy as like, you know, just flipping a switch and deciding to like trade that hour. But I think anyone who decides that they are going to trade 
that hour of whatever you call it, revenge. Bedtime procrastination. <laughs> yeah, for the Netflix or for mm-hmm. whatever it is that provides very little, if any, mm-hmm. probably no value to your life at all mm-hmm. to go to sleep and get up early and have a productive hour in the morning where you can center yourself or meditate or get ready for the day without any interference from kids or husbands or you know wives or whatever it will change your life mm-hmm. it's changed mine totally i actually had this conversation with my own therapist the other day i was just saying i was saying like i'm so tired i'm just exhausted all the time and her answer was like well how much are you doing that's not actually filling you up or you know helping you in a meaningful way and i was like oh yeah i've been scrolling on my phone yeah, the more I scroll on my phone, I'm definitely lower on the happiness level. Yeah. For sure. So just making that one change, I no longer scroll right before bed and I sleep that extra little bit of time and I feel yeah. significantly better. Yeah, I'm going to have to do a whole episode on discipline because people think discipline like is stagnant and boring and like not good, but it really gives you the freedom where you're not tired later, where you've done the things that are important or set you free for the rest of your day. Mm -hmm. So not scrolling on your phone and having the discipline to do the things you need to do, like go to bed, right? It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. But that's another episode. Okay. Tell us, we've talked about sleep quite a bit. Give us another lifestyle factor you really drive home. Of course, diet. Mm -hmm. Of course. What do you like about a healthy diet? I think... I mean, there's obviously the health benefits. There is a whole field of psychiatry that's getting much bigger lately, nutritional psychiatry, Mm -hmm. which is like, you know, using food to heal or using food to kind of supplement the other work that you're doing and making sure that you're using food to nourish yourself rather than to just eat to not feel hungry. Right. Um, And I, I, to be honest, I don't have a ton of knowledge about like, you know, whether it's more protein or it's um, kale or it's, you know, this thing or that thing or whatever. And I, I honestly, if I were to guess, I would say there's like no magic answer, right? It's- there is a magic answer, actually. <laughs> it's more plants, to be honest. Right. No, that's what I was going to say. I was gonna yeah. Say consistency in choosing things that grow from the earth. A hundred percent. Right. And it's not saying like, you know, we can't have the treats or we can't do this or that. It's just making consistent choices that are nourishing. A hundred percent. And really just saying like in your mind, whenever you're aware of what you're eating, right? Being very mindful, Mm -hmm. saying, where are the nutrients in this? Am I fueling my body or Mm -hmm. am I just basically having empty calories, which is what we eat when we're not emotionally stable? Mm -hmm. We just don't have the bandwidth to make those kinds of choices or to to put in the effort to meal plan or to, it's just easy to go through the drive-through. If you don't have any bandwidth, if you're super tired, like, I get it. I've been there. I've done that too. Yeah. It just digs you further and further into that rut, which is very, I mean, I'm so compassionate to that. I have been there as well, but just being on the other side of that, thinking like how foreign it would be to drive through a drive through at this point in my life. I'm like, oh my God, how far I have come. Mm-hmm. 
and how good I feel for it. I, I mean, that's the reason that the podcast is that rooted feeling. It's there is a real palpable sense of well-being that you get from making all those small choices to nourish yourself well, to sleep well, to you know take that hour that's not productive and change it into a productive hour at a different time in the day. All of these little choices. It feels really daunting to think like, oh, I have to do all of these things all at once, but really it's just consistency. Or it's making small choices Mm -hmm. that you can incorporate rather than having to like make it this like big rush. Oh yeah. Yeah. You don't have to make all of the choices at once. Mm -hmm. Just one small choice grows. Yeah, exactly. Okay. After nutrition, what do you recommend? Uh Uh-huh. Movement. Yeah. Whatever that looks like for you. I agree. Right? Yeah. I don't even really tout the recommendations so much because mm-hmm. you get a little bit of benefit with even just mm-hmm. the little bit of the littlest bit of movement. And of course, when you feel that, that grows too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. people will get there, but it's the exercise you'll do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes, the exercise you'll do. Although I will say specifically for anxiety, that yoga is like has a pretty fair evidence behind it for doing great. Um, for doing yoga for anxiety. And I think it's just this like beautiful combination of slowing down mm-hmm. and taking those deep breaths, which is very good for your nervous system. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're like living in that sympathetic fight or flight kind of high right. energy anxiety kind of state, that taking those deep breaths can like re-engage the parasympathetic nervous system and help calm things down. And, mm-hmm. and then you have the space to be like, oh yeah, that's actually not that big a deal. <laughs> Um, so, and then the movement that goes with it, I think it's just like slowing down plus moving plus like feeling and being intentional in your body. Body, Yeah. Yeah. So yoga is just so beautiful. Okay. Great advice. And if you could just stretch. I'm going to go get some yoga in after this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And then stretch. Yeah. That's great. I love stretching. It feels so good. Yeah. And then beyond exercise, what else is Support. Yeah. Community. Social connections. Mm-hmm. Finding people who are your people. Mm-hmm. Who support you and love you and treat you with kindness. And How do you get rid of the people who aren't your people? You see how you feel when you're with them. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. If we all have that, you know, we all have those connections where it's like you leave and you feel drained. Mm-hmm. And maybe that still can be a connection. It just needs to be under certain circumstances or in specific scenarios or whatever, but you know the friends that feel good to be with. Right. And you want to be with those friends. I agree. That's looking beautiful. Okay, well, we've given everybody some really good things to think about. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you want to share? I do want to make a point to say that if you need medications, it's totally fine. Oh, yeah. Totally fine. My favorite metaphor is medications as being the way of unlocking the door. Okay. And that the work that you do, like, you know, with the exercise, the diet, the other things that, you know, making great friends, connections, all those other things are like turning the knob, right? You still have to turn the knob. You still have to push the door. You still have to walk through the door yourself. Like, maybe you just needed it to be unlocked. 
And I've had so many people who do so many things in their lives. Like, you know, they're doing the exercise, they're doing the therapy, they're doing all these other things. And like, they just still feel really bad. Just a little bit of medication is what they needed for all of those things to kind of like integrate and feel good for them. And they just feel so much better. And they're like actually getting the benefits of the things that they're doing for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I just, I'm not here to crap on medications. No, absolutely not. We love medicine. Yes. But we also say like, there are so many things that we can be doing differently for ourselves to support ourselves in different ways. Mm -hmm. So yeah, medicines are good. If you need them, it's great. Okay. Go for it. Wonderful. Well, thank you for coming. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge and insights and tell everyone how they can find you. So I am a psychiatrist at um, Reproductive Psychiatry and Counseling. I can see people in Texas. So if you need a psychiatrist and that's interesting to you, you can find me at rpcclinic.com. You can request an appointment there or kind of just learn about the clinic more there. I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Nichelle Haynes, dr.nichelle with an N, Haynes. Um, I'm not super active right now. I just like don't have the bandwidth for it. So one of the things I'm doing for myself is kind of like taking a little break, but I'm going to be back soon. Good, good. We we miss all of your posts, but also I'm so happy that you're taking what you need. Yeah. So I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Nichelle Haynes, rpcclinic.com. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share it with a friend. And I will see you next week.